this was to have been a major event in Bruce Jury's career. It's the 700th anniversary of what we've come to call the Declaration of Our Broth. That was to have been his theme as he travelled the country from North Carolina to Alabama, Georgia to Washington DC, where the National Tartan Day celebrations take place. But Dr Jury is nothing if not controversial. He has serious questions about this document and the influence that's claimed for it. For instance, as we'll hear, it's said to be a prototype for the American Declaration of Independence, something which he simply doesn't believe. Last month he rehearsed his arguments in what may well have been the last of the Dariada conversations. So what does he think is wrong with what is held up as one of the most important documents in Scotland's history? What's wrong with that is that it was never a declaration. It was a private letter sent to one person. And secondly, I don't think it was ever called the Declaration of Arbroath until the 1940s. You know, that's less than 10% of its lifespan. About 22 years ago, I think, the Senate in America passed a resolution to say that, you know, we love all things Scottish. The Scots made a tremendous contribution to America and the Declaration of Independence was written in emulation of the Declaration of War Broth, which I would contest is just plain wrong. So why are you so certain that the two are not connected? Okay, where should we start? Should we start with the American end and then work backwards? That might be interesting. When I talk to my American friends about this, they say a number of things. They go, oh, but the sentiments in the Declaration of Independence are the same as those in the Our Broth document. Actually, they're not. The two are quite at odds with each other. The second thing they say is, but the founding fathers, most of them were Scots or Scots influenced. The Scottish Enlightenment was part of their education and so on. Yeah, that's true, but it doesn't mean anything about the document. They say almost half of the founding fathers, as they call them, the signatories to the Declaration of Independence, were Scots or of Scots stock. Well, OK, but that means that more than half weren't. And finally, the signatories did not construct the Declaration of Independence. It was one man, Thomas Jefferson. There was actually a kind of drafting panel of five people. One of them was Benjamin Franklin, and he said later that none of his ideas went into it, and it's probably true of the other three as well. So it was more or less entirely down to Jefferson, maybe some ideas from other people like James Madison and so on. And I can find utterly no evidence that he even knew of the existence of this document or the sentiments in it. I've searched the catalogues of his private library. I've searched the catalogues of William and Mary University, you know, where, where he went and where he undoubtedly came under the influence of Scots or Scots-influenced thinkers and teachers. No question. No question that Reverend Witherspoon, who invented what went on to become Princeton University, Major Scott, fought in the the battle along the road here, you know, when Johnny Cope got roasted, he was part of that, and then he went to America. Yes, yeah, sure, they were all Scots, but I've also looked in the works of Enlightenment writers in Scotland. Adam Smith, David Hume, who was a great friend of Benjamin Franklin's, of course, and I can't find a single reference to the, the Arbroath letter or its contents or its sentiments in any one of them. Now, I'm prepared to be corrected. If someone knows the canon of Enlightenment writing better than I do, then I'd be delighted to hear it. But surely the document was republished several times during the 18th century. The text turned up in various books, one book in particular, and then copied onto others. But, you know, not everybody reads every book, and it may just have been glossed over. I mean, I, I would like to see a proper exegesis of this but when I ask everybody, 
which you know about this, they always say, oh, it must have been the case, that. So it's a kind of circular argument. Now, I'm quite happy to get shot down in flames for that, but it seems to me it was not around. Even if it was around in Scotland, did anybody know about it really? In America, and there doesn't seem to be much evidence of that. Is there anything in your reading of the two documents yeah. which actually suggests there is that link? Or are there, in fact, suggestions that things in the 1320 document would actually be sort of totally inimical to anybody in 18th century America? I've got a coffee mug that my son bought me, which has the two famous quotes on it. The one that says, for freedom alone, and the other one that says, so long as a hundred of us shall remain alive, etc., etc., Let's remember that the translation that we mostly see around the place is the one made by Ferguson, who was Keeper of the Records of Scotland, 1947. It's his translation. I don't think it's a perfect translation. Some of the words he used mean a different thing to our modern mind than they would have done to the 14th century mind. For example, for freedom alone, this word freedom, and that's the one the Americans latch onto, by the way, because they're all about freedom. Americans mean a different thing when they say freedom to what we mean by freedom. You and I mean freedom to go on a bus and freedom to go for a pint and freedom to vote. What Americans mean is freedom to do anything I want to and nobody can stop me. You know, it's a, it's a kind of libertarian, right-wing libertarian argument. The word freedom does not appear in the Latin of the original Arbroath text. The word used is various cases of libertas and that meant a very different thing to the Roman mind, you know, where it first cropped up to the mind of a a scholar who understood Latin in the 14th century. What it really conjures up is the condition of not being in slavery. That was it. And also the ability to take part in, let's call it, the Legislative Assembly, whatever that would happen to be. And when you look at who wrote, or who signed, rather, the Arbroath document, it was a bunch of nobles, knights and earls, who were of one particular political faction. They were, I believe, those who were supporting Robert the Bruce. Exactly right. They were the Bruce political faction. They did not speak for the whole of Scotland. There were many people in Scotland who really didn't take Bruce's side, even in 1320, even six years after Bannockburn. And there's a wee bit of context to this. Why, first of all, were they writing this letter to the Pope in Avignon? Pope John XXII had been hassled quite a lot by the English to recognise Edward or Edward II as the overlords of Scotland. And Scotland wanted to make the case that, no, we had a king, we've got a king of our own, thank you very much, and we don't need the English hassling. And here's the word, our poor little Scotland. Personally, I'm ashamed of any document that contains the words, our poor little Scotland. And uh, England kept sending letters to the Pope about this, that and the other, and recognised their superiority. So the Scots were getting their own back, and there was a kind of coordinated, concerted PR campaign. A number of letters were written to the Pope around this time, of which they are both documents. There's only one. What they're saying was, we've got a king, we're fine with him, we will put ourselves under your authority, your holiness, because you are, you know, the, the equivalent of an emperor, um, but we're not going to go under, under the English. Remember, at this point, Scotland was excommunicated. Mainly because Robert the Bruce himself had been excommunicated. And that's yes, that's whole... exactly right, because of the, the murder in Greyfriars Kirk, where uh, the Red Common got stabbed by somebody... And there's all that Victorian stuff about Locker going in and saying, I'll max sicker, which probably never happened, but it doesn't matter. It was definitely 
his his hands were on that, you know, and murder on their sanctuary. Can you have it? So that was a problem. They had to get back from that, and they had to be accepted again as a full nation within, you know, the European context, which meant within the church, and that's what they were aiming for. So they were saying, Bruce has legitimacy. We are the people who support him, and as long as a hundred of us. We're talking about the nobles. The nobles here. remain alive. This will be the way it is. We we we'll be the guard. We'll give surety for his behaviour. And if we don't like it, we'll kick him out. By the way, so this is not something about the rights of the common man. One hundred of us. This is not some egalitarian principle. It's saying we're in charge. We are the people, and we are the ones guaranteeing that he'll be a king, a Christian king, and a good king. Right? It is notable and noticeable that of the signatories of the Arbroath letter, there's not a single cleric among them. Now, you would think if you were writing to the head of the church, you know, the bishops and the abbots and the senior clerics would get in there and say, we support this, but no, they all kept their heads down. And maybe quite a, a calculated ploy, actually. They didn't want to turn this into a, a church matter. It was a, a political matter of state, of nationhood, of sovereignty, and therefore it was right that it should be done in the king's name by the rulers, the aristocrats. But surely the fact that it was written in quite sophisticated Latin yeah. suggested that perhaps a churchman oh. was uh, very definitely involved yeah. in the in the writing of it. Yeah, it says at the bottom of it, it says, our broth. It was probably put together there, or maybe turned into sort of neat handwriting there, or maybe that's where all the seals were appended. Our broth was the, the equivalent of a university of its time. It was Bruce's chartulary. It's where all these charters were kept. It's a natural place to put it. Although there are some people who say, and I've not explored this, it was actually written in New Battle Abbey, which is about what, two miles from where we sit right now. But it certainly came, it certainly issued from our broth. And uh, everybody would know that at least the abbot's hands were all over it. But even Bruce's great supporter, you know, the Archbishop of Glasgow, he, he's not to be seen. But he's probably standing behind the curtain while it's happening. So it's a really complicated set of circumstances, and it's not the only letter that went. But here's the kicker. There only ever were two copies of it. The one that went, and the one that stayed behind. Which we still have in our National Records of Scotland, in a fairly, fairly moth-eaten state, right enough. The one that went to Avignon, we've no idea if the Pope ever got it. We have no idea if the Pope responded to it. It doesn't exist in any of the Catholic archives. There are a couple of transcripts of it in Catholic archives. One, I think, I'm right in saying, in Rome, and one in Ireland. Transcripts that were made early on, so it, it got about. But we just don't know what the reaction was. I mean, it didn't matter in the upshot because Scotland and England came to a treaty, you know, after Bruce's death, and we were fine after that. As you see, we've been fine ever since, haven't we, for the next 700 years? Stop laughing, David. <laughs> so why are we celebrating so much oh. 700 years on? Well, everybody likes a, a round number, don't they? Surely the Americans, I mean, we don't go for it. I don't know, do we go for it much in this country? If you go to our broth on the 6th of April... They'll all be dressed up in 14th century ecclesiastical costume and suits of armour and, and or chain mail. And they'll all be marching about with this declaration on a pole and recreating the signing of it and all that stuff. And that's a piece of historical pageantry, but it wasn't like that. And it was never called a declaration. It's a private letter. Declaration. You copy it and you send it round. You nail it to church doors. That never happened. This was a private letter. 
do we know if the Pope replied? No, we don't. I've spoken to you know historians who do this for a living, and they say there's maybe you could pick up hints in the Pope's subsequent behaviour that he must have seen it and noted it. Maybe the various people who were out from Scotland as envoys out there also making the case. Maybe they had, in fact... Essentially, though, it kept Scotland independent all the way through until 1603. Yeah, but you know, 1770. you know what bothers me about people saying it's Scotland's declaration of independence? We weren't not independent. You know, it's not like we had to prize ourselves away from, from English domination. Sure, they'd given us a hard time ever since... The 1290s or whatever it is, but we weren't a vassal state to them, we weren't part of England, we weren't some northernmost region trying to get it, cut itself away, like Catalonia or like Scotland today it wasn't like that, and to see a parallel in today's independence movement with a parallel then is, is a false parallel, now you know me I'm a, the staunchest supporter of Scottish independence if we hadn't been hard and swoggled in 2014, or indeed in 1914, it would have come about. But this is 1320, there's not the same set of circumstances. Scotland had the potential to be quite a rich country with a tremendous wool trade with the rest of Europe and so on. You know, we were all right. And it just needed the English to back off, which they did. And it needed the Pope to say, or the Church to say, come, cool down, man. That must have happened at some point because that is what happened. But I don't think... Yeah, I don't think a postcard came back, you know, picture of Avignon Bridge and on the back, got your letter, best wishes of the Pope, you know, and I'm not sure that didn't happen, or at least I'm not sure it did happen. No one can tell me it did. I'd love to see some evidence because it would be nice to know. It would round off the story, wouldn't it? OK, so when you tell the Americans the kind of thing you've just been talking about, what's their reaction? Well, actually, most of them are quite sensible and they sort of nod and they think about it and they go, well, mm, yeah, yeah. And I say to them, you know, it's only been called the Declaration of Our Broth in emulation of your Declaration of Independence. The influence is kind of the other way. And they go, oh, well, that's worth thinking about. And I see you've written something about it. We're going to read that. I'm going to take it seriously. However, if there's anybody there from the Scottish government, they hurl themselves across the room at me and try to drag me out of there. How dare you? You know, you're destroying the party line. We've sent, the last 20 years, administrations of all stripes and colours have sent people out here from Scotland to tell this story about the linkage between these two documents. You know, how dare you come along and upend that? Well, if it's wrong, somebody has to say so. If I'm wrong, somebody should put me right. But you can't argue it just on the basis of it's good PR. As you heard him say several times, if you know different, then please let him know. Don't take it out in the Porty podcast. We're simply the messenger.